Grace to you and peace from God the Father, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. So good morning to you once again. Thank you. Like I said, there's a lot going on um, this morning, and I don't know about you, but I feel a little buzz in the air of the excitement that's going to happen this afternoon. Semiannual meeting coming up later, of course, and then roll right into Taste of Grace, uh, Taste of Grace fundraiser raiser, as soon as that meeting is over. So like I said, come on in back in a little before 12, and we can get those two events going on. So a lot going on here today, a lot going on in the church. You heard a lot, lot of announcements, um, and I kind of think that's a theme for a lot of us. There's a lot going on in our lives um, every day of the week, and it seems like twice, twice as much on weekends. We don't just kick back on weekends anymore. We got kids heading every which way to sporting events, and we got work and jobs and things like that. And so now that, um, that I have you here, right, we're here, and I pray, you know, I try to pray every week that God help us to eliminate the distractions that we brought in here with us. And those aren't just words to say. Those, that's a real prayer, a real understanding that that's what God does for us, that he holds us and we can listen to his words of guidance and direction um, for our lives, always leading us back to him. You know, a few weeks back uh, with our youth group, that was our theme for the evening was distractions. Um, how, what kind of distracts us, distracts us in our lives, how we can become a distraction for other people. And since we're all here this morning, again, I want us to kind of set the mood and um, remind us where we're going this morning, the things that God wants to have on our minds, the things that God wants us to have to help strengthen our relationship with him. Um, and then so by way of reminder of all of that, I want to say to you again this morning, Happy Easter. Easter. I'm sorry, Happy Easter. And you'll remember, I, I constantly remind us, just to keep it fresh in our minds, that Easter isn't a one-day celebration, it's a 50-day celebration. Um, we're in the midst of what we would call our Easter celebration. This is the fifth Sunday of Easter, for those of you keeping score at home, right? In a few short weeks, we're going to be cel celebrating Ascension Sunday, and then right on the heels of that, Pentecost Sunday. Those are some of my favorite Sundays uh, to be talking about different things. Now, for the past several weeks, we've kind of had a little series going. We've been focused on, focusing on the appearances that Jesus made after his resurrection, after he uh, literally conquered death and opened up the heavens, right? And that's what we talk about, the Easter celebration is all about, is God, Jesus, opening up the heavens to us. That's a common theme throughout the New Testament. It's a common theme that we should be concentrating on. It's a common theme that we should be focusing on. A couple of scriptures that kind of point that out. Uh, Mark 1.10, this is right after Jesus' baptism, as Jesus is being baptized. It says, immediately, Jesus coming up out of the water, he saw, he, Jesus, saw the heavens opening, and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him, the heavens opening, right? Um, later on, right after this, Jesus was having a conversation with Nathaniel and tells him that you will see great and unsearchable things which you do not know, is basically what he was telling him. For example, now look at John 1.51. Uh, Jesus, he said to Nathanael, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And then one more, just to make sure we get the point here. Um, this is the moment where Stephen is being martyred. Stephen's being stoned. He's being killed uh, for what he is testifying, for what he believes, for what he knows is the truth. And they thought, found it offensive because he was telling them uh, what was what. This is in Acts chapter 7. And it said, he, Stephen, behold, I see the heavens opened. Right? Heaven's opened up in the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So now I could have used several other verses that say the same thing, but you get the idea here. 
right? We see Jesus opening the heavens. And again, that's a major theme of, of the New Testament. It's a major part of what we should be celebrating during this 50-day uh, celebration of Easter, these 50 amazing days of Easter. Opening up the heavens, right? Jesus opened the heavens. Now, if you're sitting out there, you should be asking me almost out loud, you know, how did he do that? And what did that look like? So go ahead and ask me, how did he do that? And, and, and what did it look like? Thank you. I'm so, I'm so glad you asked that. I'm so glad you asked, right? So, okay. That's why we're here this morning, in order to understand this fully, to understand how and why Jesus opened up the heavens. Um, now, we've been talking, like I said, we've been talking about the days uh, after Jesus' resurrection, when he was appearing to his disciples and teaching them, and, and lots that we're learning from that. But to do this, to understand this, how Jesus opened the heavens, we've got to go back to the day Jesus died. Uh, we call that Good Friday. And, and trust me when I say um, that that was a very good Friday. Okay, most Fridays are good, right? But this was a great, this was an exceptionally great Friday. Um, several remarkable, um, amazing, extraordinary, astonishing things happened that day. And I want to share two of them with you this morning. I want to set, set one up and then I want to show you um, how Jesus did all of this, the heavens reaction to Jesus on that, on that Good Friday. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, um, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record on the day that Jesus was crucified that the sky turned dark, the sky turned eerily black at the sixth hour of the day. Take a peek at what Matthew says here. It says, now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. So this is, uh, the sixth hour is 12 o'clock, and uh, the ninth hour is 3 o'clock. Uh, this is just one of the remarkable things that happened uh, that day. Um, but I want to talk about this darkness. I want to talk about this moment. I want to talk about this from um, not only from a biblical standpoint, from a historical standpoint, and put some uh, dots together. Then we're going to uh, talk about something else that happened here. Okay, so for example, um, this passage right here. This Greek word for fell um, is uh, the Greek word genomai, which uh, depicts an event that kind of slowly crept up on them. It's not like all of a sudden the light got turned out. Out. All of a sudden, it just started creeping up on them. And before they knew what was happening, it was black and it was dark out there. And yet, it appears to have been a cloudless day. I'll get to that in a second. But then suddenly um, and unexpectedly, it started to become darker and darker until this ominous dark gloom um, filled the entire landscape, right? And then the, the entire world, this is the darkness that, that, that came over them. And this is how the heavens reacted to Jesus being, being crucified, being killed. And by the way, the Greek word for darkness there... <clears throat> excuse me, is gotos. Um, and we see that actually all over the New Testament. We see that word a lot. It means, whenever, every time we see it, it means very dark, very black, very dark. And while we're at it, the word for, uh, for land there is the Greek word ges, which is the Greek word for the earth, which depicts um, this darkness fell over the entire earth. Now, um, when we think, well, that's just in the Bible, right? Well, no, it isn't. It's throughout history, and it's, uh, you know, a lot of uh, historical people have written about it. Um, several historians at least mentioned that a darkness covered the entire earth about the time Jesus was crucified, and one of them kind of nails it almost to the day. Um, there's really no explanation for this darkness. It's not an eclipse, right, because it lasted three hours, not three minutes, right? So it's not, it's not an eclipse. There's no real explanation for it. And, and the coolest part, okay, maybe not the coolest part, but the coolest part is there's um, a lot of non-biblical historians that, that talk about it, that collaborate this. Take this guy, for example. I'm not going to play who dis with you this morning because you got no chance at this guy. This guy is named Thallus, right? <clears throat> and he's a historian. And he was writing around the year 52 AD. So think about that, about 20 years after the event happened. And he mentions 
the day that the earth went dark. 20 years before this, he says. And, um, and people say, well, that was 20 years after the event. Well, you know what? If we all got together and started writing about uh, the events of 9-11, we'd do pretty good with it because that's painted in our heads and in our minds pretty, pretty vividly. If the earth suddenly went black for three hours plus, um, we would, that would be in our heads pretty vividly. So, um, so Thallus is writing about it. So um, and he's convinced. But the coolest part about Thallus writing about this and he mentions Jesus. He mentions the time that Jesus was crucified and the, and the earth went black. But he's actually a Jesus skeptic, right? But he's still writing about these historical events. He's still writing about this stuff that we can look at and we can say, you know what? This lines up exactly with, the, with what the Bible was saying. But he didn't believe he was a Jesus skeptic. He didn't believe Jesus was who he said he was. He writes about some of the things that Jesus did, the remarkable events, but he tries to, tries to play them off, right? And he does say that this was a worldwide event. Thallus says that this was a worldwide event, but at the same time tries to sweep it away by saying it was some kind of, uh, of an eclipse or something, but somehow that lasted three hours, not, like I said, three minutes. And then there's another historian, I don't have a picture of this guy, but his name was uh, Julius Africanus, um, and he refers to the same event, and he refers to Thallus's writing, and he's saying Thallus has it all messed up. There's no way that this was an eclipse because it lasted this long. So there's another historical writing or historical writer that, that talks about the same, uh, the same event at the same time. One uh, Greek historian um, named Feljan um, wrote an extensive chronology of, the, of Greek history and Roman history uh, about AD 137. So this is significantly afterwards. But he talks about, and here, here, I've got it, actually the quote written down here. That's why I keep looking down on my notes here. It says, in the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad, which translates to the year 33 AD, right? This guy's writing this in 137 AD. He says this, there was the greatest eclipse of the sun and it became night in the sixth hour of the day i.e. noon, so that stars even appeared in the heavens. And then he talks about, and we could talk about these other events too, but he talks about the same events. There was a great earthquake in Bethania, he says, and many things were overturned in Nicaea. So just like Thallus, um, this guy, um, this Feljan, tries to explain this darkness away by an eclipse. He acknowledges that it happens, and he even nails the year that it happens. And he says, this is what happened, and this is how long it happened. He's practically quoting from um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and he, yet here he is, a historian, saying, yeah, but that's not why it went dark. It's not Jesus wasn't who he said he was, and that kind of thing. But again, we look at these historical events, and we look at these historical things and say, wow, you know, these guys are really collaborating what we read in the Bible. So many times we hear, well, there's no historical evidence to back up the Bible. Well, you know what? There's a stack about this high that backs up a lot of what we look at in the Bible. We just got to look into it. We got to read down kind of almost between the lines and find these little golden nuggets. And thankfully, um, there are a lot of people that do just exactly that. And this is what they came up with. So if we're, not lo or if we're looking for non-biblical support of Jesus, here it is. And, okay, so getting back to the darkness. <clears throat> Excuse me, I got a frog this morning. Getting back to the darkness, it looks like it's a fulfillment of scripture, of prophecy, that we don't really look at. We don't say Jesus fulfilled this, but we do say prophecy was fulfilled that day. If we look at Isaiah in chapter 50, uh, verse 3, the first part of it says, God says, I clothe the heavens with darkness and cover them with funeral clothing. Now, this is a little bit out of context, and I don't want to read this whole section, but I do want to read this part that talks about, um, in verse 6, we go back to where Jesus is talking, and Jesus is uh, saying these things before they happened. 
He says, I didn't hide my face from insults and spitting. And then and it goes on, it almost reads like Psalm 22, it, this section, it talks about what Jesus was going through. So we look at it from a historical standpoint, we look at it from a prophetic standpoint, we look at it from a reality standpoint. So from 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock in the afternoon, um, this is significant. This time is significant. It's not like this is just kind of a random time that gets thrown in there, and it's not just a random detail that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all put in there, and some of the historians put in there as well. 12 o'clock. 12 o'clock is the time that the high priest, Caiaphas, now remember this is Passover, this is the day Jesus died, this is Passover. Caiaphas in all of his priestly garments um, would be beginning the process of sacrificing that Passover lamb at 12 o'clock. That's when he begins the process of sacrificing the Passover lamb. And now at this moment, it gets dark until 3 o'clock, until, uh, until the ninth hour, 3 o'clock. 3 o'clock is the time of the evening sacrifice. Three o'clock is the time that Caiaphas would actually be sacrificing that lamb and, and offering up the blood of the lamb to cover the sins of the nation. And, and at that moment, the time of the evening sacrifice is when, when this lamb was to die to cover the sins of the, of, the, of the nation. But that's the moment that the lamb of God died to take away the sin of the world. Not cover the sin of the world, the lamb of God died to take away the sin of the world. So now imagine this scene here, right? Turn the gem a little bit and, and, and read into it a little bit. Sometimes we look at the gem, you know, I've got a, I got a little one here. Sometimes we look at the gem and we see um, our own story in it. But sometimes we've got to turn that gem so that God's light can reflect on us and we can bask in that glory of who he is and what he's done for us and what he writes to us. So let's do that today. Let's let some of that light shine on us a little bit today. So 3 o'clock, if we're standing there, right, and Passover Friday, this is a huge moment for, for everybody here um, in, in Israel, in, in Jerusalem. So this is a huge moment here. Caiaphas is in his glory, right? This is what he gets paid for. This is his moment to stand up there, right? Stand up there next to the, next to the temple. We've got the temple, we've got the holy, we've got the holy of holies, ready to sacrifice that Passover lamb when Jesus breathes his last, right? And commends his spirit into God's hands, just like we read here a moment ago. And here, right now, in history, this is the moment of truth, when Jesus breathes his last, three o'clock, time of the evening sacrifice. Stand there with Caiaphas for a second, there's no way for us to know exactly if Caiaphas actually uh, was able to sacrifice that lamb before everything started going crazy or not, but one thing is for sure, when Jesus says it is finished, a few miles away from that cross, inside the temple, some crazy stuff happened. You think it was crazy being completely dark outside, and it was, right? Completely crazy, right? But we got the temple, and so there's the temple court and everything. We'll get into that another time maybe, but the temple proper. Um, it's not like a big cathedral that we see in Europe and things like that. Think more like a shoebox for the temple. The temple is actually kind of a small building when it comes right down to it. And there's two sections to the temple. Um, the first section is called the Holy, and then there's a section, second section called the Holy of Holies. There's two curtains in the temple. There's a, t a curtain at the front entrance of the temple to kind of keep people from seeing in what's going on in there. And then there's a second curtain that separates the holies from the holy of holies. The holy of holies is where everything really happens. This is where uh, we kept the Ark of the Covenant until we didn't have it anymore and then it got someplace else, so we didn't have it there. But God told Moses when he was building the tabernacle, right, when he was building the tabernacle, which just is just a, a temple that we can move from one place to another. It's a tent that we can move from one place to the other. So the temple is a permanent tabernacle, if you will. 
And God told Moses, um, separate the holy of holies because that's where I'm going to come and I'm going to sit and I'm going to be with my people. When I come down to earth, that's where I'm going to sit and I'm going to sit on the Ark of the Covenant, on the cherubim. We can get into all that another time too. But so the, whole, the, the curtain separating the holy of holies was basically to protect us from God's presence because he is so holy that we can't be in his presence. So that second curtain is the one we need to talk about. The one we have to understand, the one that we um, need to take away with us this morning to let literally God's light shine on us as we, as we turn that gem. It's the thing we need to learn and to understand. Uh, and the reason we ask God, like I said earlier, and to hold us still long enough and to keep us from getting all distracted and our attention going different places so we can literally fully grasp um, the reality of, of exactly what happened that day and the significance of it, what happened that day. That Jesus was hanging on that cross and darkness was over the world. and It was very dark. So then when Jesus died, like I said, some crazy things happened. The curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. That inner chamber, again, where the Ark of the Covenant was held. That mercy seat where God sat when he came down to earth to, to commune with his people. This curtain is 30 feet wide. Like I said, the temple is not that big of a building. It's 30 feet wide, but it, it's 60 feet high, this curtain. It's 30 feet wide, 60 feet high, so it's a huge curtain, right? Some six to eight inches thick, a hand breadth of thickness, six to eight inches thick. This curtain, when Jesus died, when Jesus breathed his last, when Caiaphas is standing there ready to sacrifice that, that Passover lamb, that curtain gets torn in two from top to bottom, gets torn in two, as if God himself literally just reached down himself and, and ripped that, that, that curtain in half to reveal his mercy seat to everyone. Now, it's not set, we're not separated it separated from it anymore. Um, so again, put yourself there in Caiaphas' shoes. This had to be a moment that just freaked him out. Imagine the deafening noise of that, uh, that massive curtain being torn down the middle, down in two, and imagine the shock, imagine the shock and horror on Caiaphas' face when, when he looked directly into the Holy of Holies and God's presence wasn't there. Why? Because it was on the cross. See, when Jesus was lifted up onto that cross, the cross became the eternal mercy seat then, where the blood of the lamb, the blood of the final sacrifice was poured, was laid out. No longer necessary for the high priest to go through these motions anymore. No longer necessary for the high priest to make these sacrifices anymore because the blood of Jesus had now settled the issue, now, once, all, and forever. And God removed that barrier. God removed that barrier between us and him declaring that the way to the Holy of Holies was now available to everyone who believes in his name, to everyone who believes in the name of Jesus, Whoever, everyone who opens their heart to him and accepts them and lets them into their heart. He, the, that way is now open to us. God removed that barrier. And so what we got to understand this morning, what we got to take home with us, what we got to use these words of assurance to build us up and to say, yes, I want that relationship with God because of the things that he's done for us and the way he's cleared things out of the way. Since that holy of holies is now wide open to us, wide open to us, can we take a couple minutes maybe each day? Can we take some time out of our busy schedules to actually go and enter into God's presence? Enter into God's presence and actually worship him actually make our requests known to him, actually commune with him, actually fellowship with him because he's opened the way for us and there's no longer a barrier there for us. That's what Jesus did for us. That's the celebration of Easter. That's the 50 days of Easter to celebrate things like this, moments like this. Yeah, there's some crazy things that happen, but there's some very significant things that happen too. 
that curtain being torn in two is maybe the most significant thing that we read in the Bible because now that holy place is open to us, each and every one of us. And the blood of the lamb did that for us. The blood of the, of the sacrificial, the Passover lamb did that for us. Christ did that for us. Like it said in Hebrews 4, um, that we just read a second ago, verse 16, it says this. I'm going to end with this because this is what I want us to be thinking for the rest of the day, for the rest of the morning. It says, then let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence. We can't do that if we're too busy going in all these other directions and doing all these other things and stopping out all these other fires. No. It says, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence. How? Because it's open to us now. Because Jesus is open that way now. Why do we enter the grace of, with confidence, the throne of grace with confidence? So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Right? God says, I am there for you. Philippians 4, 6. Don't worry about anything. Pray about everything. Bring it to me because it's wide open. And there's nothing that stands between you and I now. And so here it is. Since this is God's promise to us. Right? This is God's promise to us right here. Let's drop everything we're doing. Come boldly before the throne of grace. And we have to do that each and every day. In our time of need, in our time of comfort, in our source of energy. So I'm just asking, you know, we got a big summer schedule coming up. That's what I said in my newsletter. You know, we got a big summer schedule coming up. We're all busy going all different directions. Let Hebrews 4.16 ring in your ears. Come, uh, then approach God's throne with grace, with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I got like 16 other things, but I'm going to stop there. Amen? Amen? All right, let's stand. Ooh, and let's continue to worship.